Hello and welcome to another episode of That Politics and Property Podcast with Prisk and Piers. Try saying that quickly. I'm E.G. Senior Writer Piers Wayner and with me as ever is consultant, chorister and ex-conservative minister Mark Prisk. Well, there's a, there's a, a job, set of job titles. <laughs> it's a broad range, isn't it? Yes. Um, I wonder which one will prove more useful to you as we wow. go through this week. Maybe choral singer, but we'll come to that later. Oh, good. Um, so we've we've had a week, haven't we? There's been the spring budget, always a big deal, and MIPIM at the same time, which yes. is also also a, a, a pretty big deal. Um, it's been a it's been a busy week. I think it would probably be odd if we didn't look at the budget first, don't you think? I think so. I think so. So um, just a, a, a sort of a recap for some of the things that I thought were standout elements for the budget. And if you've got any others, then then yeah, sure. let's add them in. So th- these are the ones that I thought would probably affect our listeners most. We've got the trailblazer devolution schemes, mm-hmm. um, the two deals for the two Andes uh, up in the West Midlands and Greater Manchester. There's also the prospect of more devolution, further deals um, on top of the ones that were suggested in the levelling up white paper. So it is. It's it's the everything, everywhere, all at once budget, isn't it? But so it's <laughs> slightly less tricky. Yes, because I I must confess that fourth E. You know, the the, the usual. I know how these things oh. work, and the sort of employment, education, enterprise, and then they were trying to think how how can they get E into levelling up, and they went for everywhere. And I just thought either they don't they haven't been following the oscars in which case they they're opening themselves up to a challenge or they have and it's a brilliant wheeze to make it the they were hoping it would be the everything everywhere all at once budget but no one went for that so it doesn't quite work it's one of those i know i've sat in those meetings where someone's trying to make some sort of neat you know description for the thing and then they'd shoehorn the last bit in but uh there was some good stuff i thought on the regional re- regional uh, development and growth well let's, let's i'd like that, it to be we, faster and bigger we've got i mean uh, they could have gone for everling up couldn't they but that would be silly. <laughs> um so one of the things we've got the, the 12 investment zones yeah uh, 12 as opposed to 200 but at least they look yes. deliverable um some more money for life sciences that's good um especially yep. as there's there's a bit of a focus on the real estate element of that mm. what seems to be more money for leveling up but actually when you look at it over the next couple of years it could actually be less but um tax reliefs for capex that's a nice yep. one um and then the, the the very contentious scrapping of the cap for lifetime pension allowance um mm-hmm which looks like it could actually make some differences to the sector, but is more likely to just benefit those people who sell their companies. Does that mean yes. that pension funds will have more money to play with? No. Well, that's an interesting answer. question. I mean, I think, <laughs> yeah, it won't be huge because I don't think it's going to affect the, I mean, but it is, you know, there's a lot of, this was born of, of hospital consultants retiring early and GPs retiring early. Um, so, and it'd be also interesting, there's a bit of politics there. If Labour are, now, are saying they're going to scrap it, mm. are they going to create an artificial rush for the door i saw the well, i saw the article suggesting that that would happen yeah um, and there is a there is a problem in the sense that i can see why he did it the way he did it which was that to devise a scheme that's for one occupation is very difficult in tax law it's yeah. very open to legal challenge and this is where i think this is why it's like the old story it hasn't been tackled not because they don't want to but because it's actually very difficult to do right so you either scrap the damn thing altogether or um, you try and find something. And the moment you create something that's clever and neat and tidy, then there'll be people who'll test it in the courts. So, yeah. you know, we'll see. But uh, yeah, I know it's interesting. All righty. 
What, what did you um, spot other than those? Well, I mean, I think those, I mean, I want to come back to the investment zones, I think, because we, it leads on to this whole argument about how do you devolve? Do you hand yeah. out money or do you give, let people generate the, more of their own and then decide how they deliver their their, their priorities? So that, 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 that's the, the heart of this. And Whitehall has, is still fighting a back effort to try to make sure that, um, they really are going to devolve, but are they going to do it with just one pot or two pots or so on? So there was mm. that. I think one of the other things I flagged up was um, the suggestion now that they're going to wind down the local enterprise partnerships. Yes. Um, now, I mean, you know, someone like Andy Street in the West Midlands has been uh, pushing for this for some time. Uh, I can see that working there. The challenge will be how that works in places like Hertfordshire. Uh, which is a single yeah. county entity. Um, what does that mean? Uh, does it mean that councils are going to run it and they won't need to get the support and partnership of the private sector? Not sure that's a good idea. Um, so that, I think there's a question mark there, particularly on the skills and training delivery agenda. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, the things that weren't in there, nothing there on housing per yep. se. Um, though I think there are other issues that we'll come on to about net zero, which may be the reason for that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm, with the investment zones, I'm pleased that we've gone away from trying to give everybody one because uh, that makes no sense. You know, I think that was the, 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 the well, do we get up to 45 or something in the, in the, the mad there budget? Were, yes, I think they were. It, it went from 30 to 40 something, didn't it? When yeah. that was that was people that they were having conversations with. Some well, quite a time bumped into somebody and, he, and he, they coughed in, 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 in investments and before they knew they had one. Yeah, I just, <laughs> it was just workers. I, I think the other thing that's clearer now is that these are, they're all going to be in, you know, the Midlands and the North in England and then more, four more in, the, in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Um, and it's clear they're much more about regeneration and that side of the equation than necessarily putting money or giving up new opportunities into into highly successful areas so i saw the folks from you know cambridge complaining that well we're not getting one and shouldn't you put money where there's success it, it is a dilemma i think at this point the logic is to do investment zones in those areas that need lifting up uh, or perhaps i should uh, say leveling up um, it's not big money, you know, 80 million each. Uh, yeah, and over, over five years. I mean, it's it's yeah. kind of, it, it it disappears. And quite a lot of that, just looking at the the detail in the dreaded red book. Mm. Um, I mean, I thought I thought the 61 minutes of of Jeremy Hunt's speech were rather dry. But the 122 pages of the red book, which I've skimmed through, um, I, I'm, I'm going to use that to sop up any spillages that I have. It's it's probably got incredible <laughs> desiccative powers. Um, the detail in that, you're right, it does have some interesting little things. For example, with the um, the focus on those twelve investment zones being um, R and D, actually that, that yeah. those links to universities, but as you said, not looking at uh, the Oxcam arc. But then again, in the detail, you see that there's a bit more of a commitment to the rail infrastructure around there, which could actually yeah. really help out. But it is, it's it's tiny amounts of money, it is. isn't it? Yes. I, it is partly because there is no money, you know, the coffers are yeah. there. And uh, at this stage, the, for the acid test, the very first acid test, which is a kind of negative thing in a way for this budget, was not to spook the markets. 
Mm. Um, ironically, because of events in American banks and Credit Suisse and so on, the stock mm. markets actually on the day of the budget were were you know a bit of a roller coaster, but it was not spooky. related. Yeah, they, it, it was not related to the budget. So in the first test was, do the markets think that broadly speaking the government is in a sound place? And the answer was yes. So that's an enormous tick. Now I appreciate that's a very low bar, you know, to be measuring the success of a budget, but it actually does matter because otherwise all the rest of it is just, you know, deck chairs on the Titanic territory. Right. I think the investment zones are interesting because they that what they've flagged up is the difficulty of getting it right, not least the geography. Um, they're talking about a maximum he- hectare, uh, hectare space, so what, 600 hectares, I think. Mm. Um, they're talking about it potentially being in more than one location in any region. Um, so you could have three different sites. Yes, maximum area. three, isn't it? That's yeah. the... And actually, although there may be an argument for two, my personal view would be that it works best if there is a single place in a region. Um, now, what's going to start happening here, and this is something very relevant to listeners to this, will be a lot of landowners, a lot of um, estate owners, and so on, we're starting to think, hmm, okay, uh, how can we get our area to form the investment zone? Uh, much as that, that took place with free ports. Um, so I think it'd be very interesting to see how that plays out. Difficult in areas like the East Midlands, which has always been you know, very tense in terms of the relationship between the local areas. Um, but I suspect that will again be, a, you know, we'll, we'll see the West Midlands on its game. I suspect uh, Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester will be on his game. He'll be clear about where he's going. Steve Rotherham, to be fair, I mean, although Steve and I in political terms are, you know, poles apart, uh, he's, he's a doer. He's a get on, yep. make it happen kind of guy. So it'll be interesting to see that Ben Hatchin, obviously, uh, up in the northeast, uh, pretty active. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the jury's out. I, I, I do believe in zones. I mean, I, you know, I cut my teeth in London Docklands and I saw the benefit of, you know, removing the planning uh, restrictions, making sure that the tax burden was as small as possible, particularly in terms of capital taxes. And allowing an area that was, you know, run down to be successful. But it also needs a strong civic authority to make it happen, to say, right, this is the designated zone. This is how it links into the transport. These are the skills we're looking to develop. These are the private sector partners. This is the, the work that we're going to do on the public sector side. This is the university contribution. It needs that dynamism that drive otherwise it you know the danger is it becomes a very nice map of hope hopeful things that never happen and increased hope values as well that's um that's another well, thing that happens true. with that very nice that's map true. i haven't that, that, that's a very good point i was thinking about it from i was thinking then as a minister but it's from a profit point <laughs> hope value is is, is critical I mean, there's the, the other thing that came up with those investment zones um, was a very nice nod to Lord Heseltine. Yes. Our former guest, Lord Heseltine. Your, your good friend. Yeah, <laughs> we're so close. Um, it, in fact, actually, the uh, the interview with Lord Heseltine is in, when's this going out? It's, it's this week, last week's um, mm-hmm. EG magazine. But what I thought was quite interesting was that, that um, while Jeremy Hunt name-checked Michael Heseltine and said that mm-hmm. you know, without him, this policy wouldn't happen. But Heseltine's actually been quite scathing about this policy. I mean, before right. the details emerged, but yes. his his view was that it wasn't joined up enough, that it wasn't 
it wasn't tackling enough of those sort of interconnected issues, the ones that you just mentioned, you know, but also educations and skills and all of these things that they have to be yeah. tied together. So to me, it, it almost seems that that the investment zones, while, yes, drawing shapes on maps is brilliant, especially if you happen to own something within those shapes on the maps. But it's it's the devolution bit, isn't it? That's it where is. we're going to actually see real transformation. Absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, the investment zone should be one tool in the armory of a regional exactly. economic agency led by a, an accountable mayor who is able to also, you know, develop skills strategy, link that to what the local businesses want, make sure their transport system is operating successfully, make sure the planning system is efficient so that when people are thinking about coming to their area, um, they can, you know, get a positive and professional response. And there's a coherence about you know, whichever particular sector you're trying to encourage, whether it's green technology or um, uh, life sciences or whatever. So it, that it's all that bit. And I think this is where, and this is less to do, I would suggest, I think because there's been turmoil at ministerial level and political mm -hmm. level, the absolute intense drive from number 10 and number 11, which you need to get this kind of devolution to happen, in which essentially you're saying the principal um, urban centres of England will now be responsible for a substantial amount of domestic policy on the ground, in skills, in training, in um, the vast majority of transport decisions, um, in terms of planning, in terms of you know all those economic development activities, and then actually in order to make that really work, you need to give them a greater proportion uh of the revenue they need should be drawn more locally so there's an issue there around how you do that which tax you use and so on now of course the quid pro quo of that which is the awkward bit is if they're all doing that locally why do we need government to be of the size it is why do we need uh, the number of civil servants we currently have and then the awkward challenge of do we need the same number of ministers probably not and if you don't need a hundred ministers of a hundred, you, do you need a parliamentary party of three hundred to govern? So it, it does open, you know, the proverbial uh, Pandora's box in that sense. But what was, the, what was the scale back with with um, with national devolution? With the so when you got like um, the Scottish government, um, Holyrood being set up, did you see a scaling back of the Scotland Department? Uh, yes, the, 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 yes, absolutely. The, the, the yeah. Scotland Department is, is really an oversight and uh, liaison department. So it's like a tiny uh, foreign office with one country to relate to. Uh, and if you look at now the Northern Ireland situation where effectively devolution is suspended whilst the assembly isn't working, then those ministers are covering a hell of a lot of stuff. But they're working yeah. with the local civil service. So that's how that works. But um, yeah, no, it's, it, it, it does have knock on implications, but I think it's overdue. And I actually think it would refresh British politics because there would then be different avenues for people who want to make a difference. They could come to parliament and come into government, but they could also actually be uh, you know, very much involved as a mayor. And the mayors are much more practical. They're more my kind of politi political role, which is about doing rather than just saying what you think somebody else should do. 
um, except for Mayor Khan, who spends his entire time in London saying what other people should be doing when he doesn't do anything himself. But enough of them. That was of a that. party political broadcast from On behalf of the member of the Conservative Party. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I'm a big fan of Andy uh, Andy Burnham and, and several other Labour MPs. I just have a I, I just despair of the lack of leadership in London. But there we go. That's my personal view. I think that looking at, at Andy's street and Burnham, they've yeah. they've kind of won the draw here they've got those trailblazer deals they already had pretty good deals and, and fairly sizable powers before they're really being focused on to lead the way yes. on this why i mean when we were speaking to to clive betts um the other week he, he raised this point as well you know the, why if you know it's going to work if mm. this is the the path that the government wants to go down then why are we having successive little increments yes of leading there as opposed to just saying okay this is what we're going to do is it from a ministerial point of view, is it easier to do it that way? Um, is it practicalities? Is there something that could potentially go horribly wrong? Is that what they're worried about? Or is it I appetite? Think, no, I think it, it, it's, first of all, it's, we. when I was in government, you know, we weren't even going to have mayors. We weren't going to have combined authorities. We were going to have LEPs. And that was about as far as we were prepared to go. So you're right. It's been incremental. Um, I think several reasons for that. One is because Whitehall is not convinced. Mm. Um, and I, by that, I mean the view of civil servants. I'll be mean, going back to the fact that <laughs> your opinion that they might be out of a job. Yes. Two, it is complex in that Whitehall is is a series of silos. You have the education people, mm. you have the business people and so on. Whereas at a local level, you have a single a authority which does all those together. And so taking going from a silo to a place-based as we would call it, uh, policy, is actually quite complex. Um, so that's important. I think the other the other reason is that we're getting very close now to having to answer the question, which both Andy Street and Andy Burnham want answers, which is why can't they generate more of their revenue locally and yeah. keep it local? And that's a big issue for government because that plays into a whole raft of other challenges. Because with the best women in the world, you'll then have an urban-rural split the, those areas that have natural city regions, of which the West Midlands is one, the Greater Manchester is obviously another, uh, North, what I will call the northern part of Yorkshire, i.e. Leeds with Bradford, um, makes sense, the Sheffield sub-region. There's some that the geography makes sense. There are others that are much more complicated. What do you do with Hereford and Worcestershire? What do you do, uh, I mean, Cornwall works because it has a strong identity as an entity, although it's a... It's a, also... It's 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 positioning. It's geography helps it, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. it's got it's got a it's got a city which it's sort of reasonably focused around, and it's cut off from everything else. Not actually cut off, obviously, yeah. but, yes. but <laughs> for any, well, I, any Cornish nationalists out there? Um, well, I, I was born and brought up west of the Tamar, so you know, just be careful there. If there's fog on the Tamar, it's because England's cut off from the. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I think I. I, I Geography does count here. I mean, I remember creating the local enterprise partnerships back in 2010. And actually what Greg Clark and I, as the two ministers involved were doing, was not saying, right, we in Whitehall have decided that your area will be this. We said, we actually said to the amazement and surprise of most local authorities, uh, you tell us what geography you believe makes practical sense. You know, is it your travel to work area and so on? And you had things, you know, Bolsover sits between two of them. And so they actually said, well, we'd quite like to be in both. And we said, actually, do you know what? That makes sense. Let's do it. 
Um, and of course, you know, you can imagine the civil service having having kittens at, at that that particular aspect of it. And then others had to be pushed together. So the eternal battles between uh, the various local authorities in Oxfordshire, uh, which seems to continue to this day. Um, the fact that, you know, Dar the folk in Derby and the folk in Nottingham do not get on, or certainly their public representatives, never mind the counties. Uh, and so that creates this tension, and that's one of the, the challenges. Whereas those people who said, right, this is, you know, Tees Valley, for example, they loved LEPs because they were no longer going to have to be dictated to by the larger Tyne folk north of them. And so they bit our hand off because, you know, they wanted to crack on with it and, and they were great. So uh, geography is a key part. Of it. So what else? There was a lot about levelling up, wasn't there? I mean, Michael Gove, I saw very proudly put out an announcement saying levelling up is at the heart of the budget. Right. Yes, yes. I, 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 there, were, there were good things. There was the 400 million on the sort of local partnerships, the, what I call the smaller town partnerships mm. although it's tempting to sort of dismiss those actually for a lot of people they're the, they're the things that matter their town center being improved their leisure center getting the investment it needed that little mini bypass that's been promised for god knows how long those things that are in the sort of 10 to 50 million pound uh, bracket mm. um but again you see my view would be that actually where you possibly can i would devolve those budgets down to them and then they can crack on with it and then they can hold their uh councillors you know to account for that i think the shift in terms of devolution is good interested to see how that plays in terms of the affordable housing program which i see was specifically included now in the powers for messrs street and burnham and others yeah. so that'll be an interesting challenge um but I, I mean i think it is there but i would like to see them you know really go the whole hog and i, I think the interesting question now uh, if labor does become the next government in 18 months or so and the thing they've got to wrestle with now is what are they going to do about it so this debate now about what is the landscape going to be in two years' time, and do I do I adjust my behaviour accordingly? That is going to come increasingly into people's decision making. When you um, well, not not when you were a minister, when you were a shadow minister. Yes. That um that thing of having to respond to the government. So oh yeah. Yes. I mean, Labour's response to to the budget is twofold, isn't it? First, they have the the leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer, stands yep. up and says essentially sound bites because that's all they can really do yes um, and then you have the shadow chancellor rachel reeves do a, a rather more sort of point by point dissection yeah so is that simply because you get only a few hours to have a look at what's going to be in the budget before it actually happens i mean you, you've been on the receiving side i have so, so so between so for for the budgets where george osborne was shadow chancellor so when gordon brown was at his height and then alistair darling hmm. so that's the back end of the the last labor government uh i was very much part of the team uh in the shadow cabinet room which is at the end of the corridor behind the speaker's chair which always sounds like some sort of narnia land but basically it's a set of offices um, you have to, do you have to pull a lever to get in there? The, the speaker's chair flips forward. Flips a forward. Yes, absolutely. There's a little staircase and take a, a, a little lantern. Anyway, moving back into the planter. So, so that that what we do there is because what people need to understand is when the chancellor gets up, uh, the courtesy is that the shadow chancellor will have been provided with a copy of the speech, nothing else, not the red book, nothing else. 
Uh, Nothing. Uh, none of the supporting no, yeah, documents. None of the supporting documents until uh, a, uh, the, the chancellor stands up to speak. Then it's so. So the chancellor, the shadow chancellor, will have uh, had a short look at um, uh, that, but but then will be responding to what's coming to them. So what you do there is, as a team, you write for the you anticipate what's likely to happen, and you write one of these bizarre speeches, which has all sorts of tabs on it, so that if he mentions, if he does this. This is what we're thinking about. If he does that, this is what we're thinking about. Of course, inevitably, chancellors love to pull a rabbit out of the hat. So mm -hmm. that there isn't a uh, what, and so that tends to be where leaders want to not comment on it. Because if well, you're this, was, this was the, uh, the 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 lifting of the pensions cap, that was that was the rabbit, wasn't yeah. it? I mean, that was it the most rabbitiest rabbit that you could have. It imagine. was the rabbitiest rabbit. Uh, yes, uh, and uh, so there. I, I mean, what happens is. Once it's been announced, and there was a little bit of time between him saying it and the end of his speech before Keir Starmer had to stand up. So in the back room, there will have been furious uh, scribbling uh, as to what the view would be. And because you've got the shadow chancellor next to you as leader of the opposition, you can say to them, you know, what this is what we were going to say if they were going to increase the allowance. How much further do you want me to go at this point? And they may say... Mm -hmm. Just stick to that and saying, well, hang on, this hasn't been thought through. Has you know, you, you can always do the sort of uh, where are the numbers on it? Has he thought this through? Is this only for a limited number of people? You know, will want to know more. Uh, so you can do that because you haven't had, you just literally haven't had a chance to look at it. What then happens is the moment um, the chancellor sits down, uh, the red book documents are provided to the shadow team. So there's somebody standing in a corridor waiting to hand them over. Um, and you then have an, the opportunity to race through the book. So you usually get about a dozen copies of the book. There's half a dozen. So, how, so that, that's when he sits down. That's when he, not when he stands yeah. up. Yeah. So the so red you, book when he sits down. He sits down. So that's when you start getting into the numbers and so on. And that's why there's always a delay. It's partly because of commercial confidentiality. Yeah. If you're announcing something. Uh, not just people betting on things, but more importantly, well, you could argue, you know, the stock market is, is not dissimilar. Um, but essentially, it's trying to make sure that no one can make money out of, of an announcement that no one else knows about. Mm. Um, that's the reason for it. But of course, it, it means as opposition, you've got this this real challenge of organising it. And I have to say, I mean, during my days, our shadow cabinet team, we were all sort of hunkered down in the room, was led by none other than Matt Hancock. Um, so what the snacks like? Well, yeah, it was. It was. I suppose it, you know, uh, I'm a tax lawyer. Help, help me get out of here. Was kind of what it felt like. But uh, no, it was. It was. It was always interesting to do because you'd scour through. The secret was always Appendix B because that showed you the, that the actual. If you go to the back of the red book, Appendix B. I think it's. It may be A this year. They changed it, and uh, that always shows you the actual numbers involved with each yeah. policy, and that gives you a sense. Or whether this is big potatoes or whether actually it's really not that consequential i mean this this goes back to the um the thing that we raised earlier about the leveling up money almost all of the little points in that appendix it comes up as negligible yes like not even worth using for, for the maths i think i think the key thing in my mind is the mindset that is about uh transferring the powers so in in one sense Yes, you can measure this solely by how much money is someone giving away or spending or whatever. But actually, what I want to see is the is the transfer of power, and mm. that's the tougher thing. And that won't obviously appear in a spreadsheet. No, that's that's true. And that 
there are still elements as you said missing from that for example you know they'll, they'll have they'll have these these pooled pots of money um drawn from various department budgets um they'll be able to retain more of of what is locally raised but they're not being given the powers to raise taxes themselves are they that no. vital plank is missing and that is tricky because you've got to make sure there's accountability um so if you're the west midlands so at the moment for example obviously council tax uh is raised should the mayor have the ability to raise something on top uh, a substantial precept now that's feasible but and it's easily collected uh, or do you introduce a different tax but then you've got to set up a whole new collection system is it principally drawn from businesses so do you the easiest thing we'll do will be to transfer the business rate system but that's a big slug of central government money yeah. and you've got to be confident that you know you might have a mayor that came to power in one of the areas decided to jack up the business rates you know enormously and then businesses started to leave and then they get themselves into a financial problem because the cash cow has moved field so i think that's the reluctance but i actually think we're, we're it's time to crack on with this and i mm. think business rates certainly a form of business rates should be transferred to those where they have an accountable mayor you know we should allow them to get on with it a couple of other things are in the, the red book yeah, if you if you wade through those pages referring to sovereign wealth funds oh yes who at the moment don't have to pay um direct taxation so so they are exempt from capital gains essentially and there was a plan to reverse that and that's a, that was quietly dropped so that that appears as uh 4.64, I think, is the first mention of that in the Red Book. I mean, I can see that, that there's a challenge there because, you know, something like uh, the the Norge Fund from Norway, mm. uh, it's a very substantial investor. Now, do you want to make it unattractive to invest yeah. in this country? I don't think so. Um, and uh, It doesn't make sense to give them a seeming unfair advantage. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because if that's the, the if that is the current legal situation, whatever you do to lessen it makes it worse. Hmm. So you've either got to decide that actually you don't care, or it, it's or that you think that the change will still mean the UK is more competitive by comparison to elsewhere. It's a little bit like the corporation tax generally. If you look, I mean, if you said to, if I said to you, right, we're going to go up from nineteen pence to twenty five, think that's a big mm-hmm. you know percentage increase. But it still means that actually the UK's corporation tax rates is pretty competitive by comparison to most of the other countries. You know, I would prefer to see it a bit lower than 25. But look, we've just spent the last four or five years, um, you know, with a huge bills for the pandemic and someone's going to have to pay. You know, otherwise people are going to stop lending to the United Kingdom and then we'll be back to the world of trusts and quateng, which, you know, none of us want to go to. And that, that macro point is a very good point, because while we're talking about levelling up department expenditure is being cut back from 4.3 billion to 2.1 billion and um, capital expenditure from 7.3 to 7 billion. I mean, those sorts of fine detail are all, all very interesting, especially to mm-hmm. nerds like us. But those macro points, the OBR has said there's a really good one. Inflation, it's saying, is going to be down to 2.9 percent in Q4. Yep. That's pretty good. And then fall to 0.9 in 2024. I mean, these these are the things that the Chancellor wants to hear, right? Um, and to remain near zero until mid-2026. And then it'll sort of creep back up to that that 2% sweet spot. 
um, so that's those sort of macro things are probably more important do you think to to our listeners than all of these little things possibly the devolution piece well the devolution is important because that's about the direction of government as a whole and also who the decision makers are so for the yeah. listeners to this wanting to know who they need to engage with that's important but the big picture has to be can we get the uh, the rate of inflation down and low and stable to allow then uh, you know interest rates to to to, to come down a little bit, not you know. I'm not, I for most of my working life, we had inflation and we had interest rates up and down. You know, and for some of it, certainly in the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, it was a real roller coaster. And I can remember the old exchange rate mechanism fiasco when it jumped to 17% or something as interest rates, which I think for younger listeners will just sound you know as if we moved to some sort of country where they carry their money in a wheelbarrow. But you know, actually. I think there's been quite a lot of negativity around the UK. And although a lot of it has been entirely understandable, I think sometimes we're very good at overdoing it. We tend to swing from believing that, you know, Britain rules the waves to we're a basket case and there's kind of nothing in between. And you just kind of think, look, there are some big deep seated issues. We all know that. I mean, we need to do a lot better. We have fallen behind in key sectors uh, in terms of automotive, for example, mm. battery, uh, we need to do more on green technology. But we've got, I mean, our life sciences capability is, is phenomenal. And we saw during the pandemic that, um, you know, the ability of that, the, the sort of biotech sector to step up to the plate is considerable. And so, you know, I, I, I just think that actually a period of slightly dull uh, steady government is probably what we all want and, and whether that's going to be uh, Rishi Sunak or whether if in the future it becomes Keir Starmer we'll have to see. I think one interesting question now will be is from now on people won't just say what is the government doing they're going to start saying and what will the opposition do instead Yeah, and that's you, you get it in every parliament that, and that'll be the interesting one because the tension then that is always there for any incoming Labour government between wanting to look sensible and trustworthy in terms of people's finances, but also wanting to show that you're more compassionate and prepared to spend money on this. Mm. And then as soon as as soon as Labour does break cover and, and suggest a policy, then, as you said before, it, it, it'll get stolen if it's a good one, as we saw with the childcare yes. policy. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, exactly. So I think. You know, there will be a narrowing in terms of policy outcomes, um, but we don't know, for example, at this stage, when they talk about rent control within Labour ranks, whether that means indexation, which I personally think is manageable, or whether there's something something a bit more draconian, which could be yes. very counterproductive. Yeah, yeah it, you know, so, that, so there's some interesting stuff to come. But um, I think I thought on this occasion, you know, given the very limited cards he had, I thought Jeremy Hunt... Uh, you know, managed to come through it. And my impression is, um, just talking about, you know, where, what's the mood at Westminster, is I think some of the people for whom the white coats were definitely looming uh, have calmed down a bit on the Tory backbenches and beginning to realise that although it may not, you know, set their juices flowing, Rishi's ability to sort out, uh, in inverted commas, Northern Ireland, to try to move this deal on the submarines. Um, There's some stuff coming through. So we'll see. And whether that then shifts the dynamic between the two front benches is is all to play for. Again, in the small print of of the budget, 
which oh, yeah. you've mentioned the the LEPs being wound down. I yes, that they were they were your baby. How does that feel? I mean, that must be horrible. <laughs> um, yeah, I helped. So we have a, what happened was for, for the listeners' benefit is is um, uh, with the Conservatives coming into office, there was a feeling we should get rid of the then nine regional development agencies, mm. and there were reasons to do so. So we came up with local enterprise partnerships where the locality decides what their area is, not Whitehall, and where it's a genuine partnership of public and private. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll be interested to see whether this is the final uh, death knell of, of LEPs. I think it's going to be a phased thing. Um, they, said, they said the final funding from central government will be removed. So, I mean, that's, yes, that that's is, life support being turned off, Mark. I, I think it I is. I hate to be the probably, one to break it. No, you're probably right. You're probably right. I probably should need to, to come to terms with the fact that that is it. Um, I mean, they weren't helped by the fact that when they started, so the, the RDA spent two and a half billion every year. So clearly, when we came in in 2010, there was no money. Uh, George Osmond was saying, right, we need to wind that down. And I understood that we had one billion, 500 million each year for over so a billion over two years to set up the LEPs and get them up and running. Only to discover Vince Cable coming into my office one morning and saying, have you seen this? Pointing to the Guardian in which a billion pounds has been promised to something called a regional growth fund. I knew nothing about it. He knew nothing about it, despite the fact that we were the people running economic development. So what it turned out was that the Quad, which was where the under the coalition government, you had two conservatives, prime minister and the chancellor and two liberal Democrats. So this was Nick Clegg as deputy prime minister and Danny Alexander as chief secretary. Clearly, some discussion had taken place about other things. I suspect the prime minister and the chancellor wanted to do and Clegg had squeezed out of them that well, in, in return, he wanted to run a regional growth fund. And George has clearly decided that they were going to have it so they could have my billion. So the poor old LEPs, we had to set them up with no money, with diddly squat. Uh, and that didn't help. That really didn't help. If we'd had that just, you know, even quarter, quarter of a billion to get them up and running, that would have helped them get going. But I mean, I actually think that many of them did a, did a good job. Um, and I shall be sorry to see them go if that if that is indeed what's going to happen. I, that, that sounded like um, the script from or the the, the pre for an episode of The Thick of It with oh yes. with you as Peter Mannion. Yes, I, I will thank you for that. You know, I, I'm honoured because Peter <laughs> was a man I uh, I very much uh, admired as a, not least the actor <laughs> Roger Allen, who I'm a big fan of. But uh, no, Peter Mannion was glorious, and I I did actually live the scene in which that you know he's he's told to sort of not wear a tie and, and have his shirt outside his trousers you know to look cool and, and youthful and peter mannion's response to that was very much my response so um yes a, a great hero of mine and, and yes it was a bit like being in in the thick of it no the scene which i have actually enacted myself um was being up the children's slide at the party away day which is totally real Absolutely correct. We went on one in Oxfordshire, and you couldn't get a signal in the in the building to say, but you could get one in the children's play area as long as you were high enough. It's absolutely correct, and, and so the, it's Brilliant. just <laughs> glorious stuff. Absolutely glorious. <laughs> oh, um, fantastic. There wasn't only one place where people were bunkered down this week. 
Um, what was there? He said, desperately trying to see if we can get across the can. The, that is the best link ever. I was just sort of scouring my notes thinking, how are we going to get this to can? That's, that's perfect. Yes, from one from one bunker to another. Indeed. I wasn't in Cannes yeah, because somebody had to stay at home and, and look after the budget. Italy. Yes, quite right. Well done. Um, and, and also, you know, I think I'm deemed too too uh, long in the tooth and grey of hair. <laughs> it seems now it's the younger ones who, who are trusted to behave themselves, which is extraordinary. Yeah, well, I, I had a number of clients who were down there, and so it's sort of been slightly quieter. We, uh, I went in the 80s when it was a bit more hedonistic uh, and quite fun, but just on the edge of being a yes yes well we'll skate over some of the things and you know the yachts and the champagne and and so on and so forth but i'd be interested to see i'm seeing several clients next week who have been down there so i shall be interested to get the feedback as to whether it was uh, whether they were all well behaved actually were they all marvelous my clients all, all, uh, all professional serious professional, people all yeah. serious people uh, you know maybe a small uh, a small brandy at the end of the evening perhaps Talking of professional, serious people, I mean, the, the politicians, the UK politicians who who go to Cannes every so often, oh, yes. how does that tend to land? I mean, did you ever think that as as a housing minister that you should go over there? And, and... It was mooted, uh, yeah. and indeed as construction minister and as business minister as well. But it always, the, it, the difficulty is... If you're not the if you're not a cabinet minister, then you get the rank gets pulled on you, and you suddenly discover the foreign secretary's got to be in New York for the UN. So the numbers for votes don't work, so your trip mm-hmm. gets pulled with a day's notice. I think also conservatives tend to be much twitchier about being seen to be quaffing champagne in sunshine, you know, in a in an English uh, spring, if we can call the current weather spring. <laughs> you know, image-wise, it's not. Yeah, the optics of of doing that while there's a budget in a cost of living crisis yeah, it's yeah. Just kind of it could end up with an interview without coffee with the chief whip which is something <laughs> interview without coffee yes god it is a euphemism and you you don't want to do one i can tell you we did have uh, one minister down there um well more than one but uh, there was uh, the investment minister lord dominic johnson uh, some people might know him as um jacob reese mogg's partner not that sort of partner a uh, business partner at mm-hmm. somerset capital uh, mm. he was down there i love the fact that they had to put dominic in so that we exactly it's it's not a member of the uh, the former prime minister's family although what i loved was was people thinking that that actually this johnson could have been related to to the other Johnson. The speech that he gave, he talking of the bunker, um, down in the in the the EG bunker, he gave a, this this wonderful speech where um, I mean, firstly he said that there were literally thousands of civil servants from his department in MIPIM looking to to pull in investment, which sounds like an extraordinary use of civil servants' time, and indeed departmental budgets. But but good for them. Um, and what was the other thing? He he uh, he had this this brilliant bit about um, the unicorns. I'm going to quote it because it's just so wonderful. Um, this It's the unicorns, the reason why people are obviously investing in the UK and why we need them to invest in real estate uh, for stables for the unicorns, no doubt. And uh, while while EU com- countries tend to have one unicorn, he said, we have 146 unicorns. We have literally herds of unicorns, sweeping silvery herds of single horned pointed unicorns, sweeping across the plains of Silicon oh. Fen and Silicon Glen and all the other science parks around Cambridge. Marvellous. What kind of a language? I don't know how that translates into, you know, uh, for the for the folk from Kurdistan. But, um, <laughs> yeah, no, well, you know, he's got a bit of character and a bit of oomph. 
great. I, I, Jerry Grimstone, who I used to know before before him, and oh, some yes, of the yes. other if some of the other sort of trade ministers, because they they usually have someone in the House of Lords because that then means they're free to travel and they haven't got to worry about votes. And also, if that person has a strong business background, yeah. then they tend tend to be, dare I say, a little more credible in front of the sort of the the folk with the big money. Um, they tend to be be pulled in from business, don't they? Yes, because they don't get paid. Is the simple truth of the matter. Um, mm-hmm. So the honour is getting get, becoming Lord Johnson. Though I do feel for him now because you know he's always going to. Because I noticed it was called Lord Dominic Johnson, and of course that's that's the way the Americans talk about it because they they're hopeless with British yeah. titles. No, well, he I, I don't know him personally, so he sounds enthusiastic. He sounds uh, a man of colourful language. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the job, isn't it? With that sort of thing, yes, it's, it's yes. tough I mean, something. It's drumming up a well, crowd. Also, I think I would say it's also a little bit of the ability to know how to how to do a deal, how to negotiate privately. Mm. So you go in and you often your the, their role is very often to sort of create the mood music for a deal before the prime minister then comes and does the final thing, or the secretary of state, or the chancellor, or whatever. So they're they're very much reaching out, engaging, building the relationships seeing how where the deals can be done bringing it to the point where it's ready to go and then either the secretary of state or if it's big enough then you know you get knocked over by number 10 uh, wanting the pm to come and do it. it it is annoying but that's it doesn't everybody in business have that you know the chief executive is suddenly available for that deal that you've been sweating over for six months um you know plus a change is all i would say to that appropriately french in the context of can so um, do you think we should, we, we should go on tour then? Do you think maybe next year we should do this from Cannes? You think? Well, the, the budget's big enough, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we've probably got a couple of quid in the uh, in the coffers. Um, I think the 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 more the more alarming one, um, which which might well happen, is us being sent to the uh, the party conferences. Oh my goodness! So a far less appealing bunker, really. Yes, well, that's well. It depends. I mean, if we if we we, we play it right, we could. Uh, you know, that could that could be that could be quite fun. We better check on what the. Mm, okay. <laughs> beginning that the reality of that is just beginning to sink in now. Yes. <laughs> oh, well, we should definitely have to think about some guests for that. That could be good. Um, and after our roaring success with Clive Betts and your yes. marvelous interview with uh, Michael Heseltine, we're really cutting the cutting the, a dash. And more to come. More Indeed. to come, dear listener. Well, I think we should we should leave um, our listeners before we give them too much. We don't want to give them 61 minutes of, of dryness. That would be too much to ask. Um, but we should leave them. Um, I'm going to leave them with my favourite Peter Mannion quote, actually, which is uh, I'm bored of this. I'm going for a Twix. Yes, I, yeah. I think you've done the polite version of this. I think it starts with an F. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's go for a Twix.